Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Jason. I get to serve as the executive pastor here, and I started my morning out as every strong Christian believer should, uh, scrolling Facebook. And uh, I came across something this morning that I think was important. Uh, it was one of my Bible profs. He posted a meme that, that basically said, Johnny reads entire paragraphs and chapters, not just one verse, because context is important. Be like Johnny. And I went, all right, that's where we're going. So uh, how appropriate, because in order for us to understand Revelation 5, we definitely have to get the proper context. And so last week, we looked at John's recording of the throne in heaven. The descriptions of one seated on the throne uh, had things like a rainbow and kind of extravagant jewels for us to reference because the beauty of God couldn't be completely gazed upon. There were 24 more thrones and 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns. There was thunder and lightning that came forth from the throne. Before the throne there were seven torches, which we're told are the seven spirits of God. There was a sea of glass before the throne as well that looked like crystal. And there were four living creatures full of eyes front and back, each one with six wings, one that looked like a lion, one that looked like an ox, one that had a face of a man, and one like an eagle in flight. Pretty weird, right? And then we hear this song of worship, this creation song. I want to remind you of it. In chapter 4, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then they said, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. The song of worship in chapter 4 is a creation song sung to the creator. Now, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? All of these things. Did anyone else feel a little overwhelmed after last week? Trying to go, so what does all this mean? Did you feel for the apostle John who not only got to see and experience all this and try and take it in, but also had the responsibility of recording it for us, for the seven churches, and then, of course, for us as well. This is awesomely weird, hard to understand. And yet God's given us some context, some context by which we can learn and we can grow uh, to understand better. You see, this is not just a description, but this is a revelation of God's plan, the revelation. Revealing is something that's not fully known. If I told you that I'm a pastor, you already knew that, right? It's not necessarily new information. It's important, it's true, but it's not necessarily anything revealed. Revealing to you may be that I sing and play guitar. It's one of the things that I love to do. 
I was in a band in college that put out two CDs, got radio play on Christian radio as well as secular radio, and played Van Andel Arena in Grand Rapids, Michigan with one of the most well-known Christian bands at the time. Even further revelation, though, is to let you know that I dropped out of that band right before they cut those CDs. I was there when we wrote the music. I was not there when they recorded it, when they got radio play, or when they played the arena. Well, correction, I was there when they played the arena. But I got to go as somebody that listened, and I got to take my youth group with me because I was a new youth pastor that had been there about a month, maybe a month and a half, and they were planning on going to this concert already. So I got to go and encourage and cheer on my friends as they led people in worship. Pretty cool. Now, I know that further revelation for some may have even been a little disheartening to go, oh, man, you, you led us to believe that you played the arena. And there are definitely times where I wish I had. But God had a perfect plan, and I was right where I was supposed to be. And so let me assure you of this. The further revelation of God's plan here in chapter 5, it definitely does not disappoint. And it's so much more than just information. So in Revelation 5, I'm breaking this down into five extremely important segments just so we can try and wrap our brains around it. And the first one is this. First segment is the scroll with seven seals. Verse 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. You see, this scroll was a, a way of communicating, a way of giving a decree, giving important information. This is something that would be done for people with power and authority because for some reason this wasn't supposed to be seen by just everyone. It was something that oftentimes was something that kings would do. They would have this stuff written down by one of their underlings. And then they would seal it with wax, and they would press their signet ring into it, knowing that the only person that could open it is the intended person, or else probably a penalty of death. So it's important that we understand this. This is a scroll that's in the right hand of God the Father, and it's sealed seven times. Now, we're told about this being two-sided. Many people have determined that this it could be something like a deed to a house, a purchase agreement. Some people would even say the, the title deed of all creation, that only the purchaser or the owner could open it. But I see this as different. I see this as different because of other passages in Scripture. They give us some insight. Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10 said, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. 
See, two-sided was very unique in this time. Because the backside of the scroll, because of what it was made of, was difficult to write on. So only if you really needed all of that information, all of those details, would it be written on the front and the back. You see, there's a lot of details that are recorded here, and we'll see that in the next few chapters. It's not necessarily a fun read. This scroll is more of a scroll of lamentation and mourning and woe. Many theologians refer to it as a scroll of judgment. Now the seven seals. Why seven? Wouldn't one be good enough? Well, seven we've referred to many times already. It was a number that referred to perfection or completion. In other words, this scroll was perfectly and completely shut for only the right person to open. Which leads us to our next segment. A big question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now imagine that initial tension where they're looking intently for anyone who is worthy. And they found no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth that was worthy. Why the wait? Why so long? How long did it take? I don't know. Enough for John to feel some stuff. That's what we know. He's trying to record what he's been told to record, and now he's waiting. Why is he waiting? Because of this, he started weeping loudly. Literally, it means... He kept weeping much. If no one is worthy, then the plan can't be revealed. Did did doubt set into John's life? Did despair set in? Did he believe something that wasn't true? Was there no one worthy? I think it's interesting that an elder, one of the 24 elders, actually comes to answer the question that the angel asked. An elder responds, I I wonder if he kind of maybe even went and put his arm around John. We aren't given that. But there's some form of comfort he's trying to give here. He tells him to stop crying. Now, I don't think he's scolding him like, stop crying. I think he's coming alongside going, Hey, 
it's okay. Because there is one who is worthy. Don't be burdened. Don't be upset. Now, there's titles that are given in verse 5. And these titles, I think, are very important. You see, there's titles that represent not only the Old Testament law, but the Old Testament prophets. In Genesis 49, I want to take you there. Genesis 49, we hear Jacob's blessing towards Judah. Now, in order to understand Jacob's blessing, you need to know that at the end of his life, this guy named Jacob who followed Jesus, even though he met him in a wrestling match, this guy was renamed. He was named Israel, and he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, good, you're tracking. At the end of his life, he blesses each one of them. And he says this to Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be all the obedience of all. The people. Jacob's blessing is that Judah would be a ruler, that his line would, would have kings, that there would be obedience. Now, we also get to see in Isaiah the Old Testament prophets. In Isaiah 11, it says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And if you jump over to verse 10, it says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. These titles are important. In it, they're saying there's Old Testament law pro, uh, fulfilled. There's Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. This one who is coming from Jesse, do you remember Jesse in the Old Testament? He's the father of David. God made a covenant with David that he would be king and that many kings would come from him, eventually the king, the Messiah. It's important here that we know that the Messiah Jesus Christ is not only a descendant of David, but he's also the source. He was at creation. He came long before Jesse. These titles, they speak in twofold. They speak of both the humanity and the divinity. The Son of Man and the Son of God. Fully man and fully God, the Messiah. Jesus reminded us that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only hope. He's it. Verse 6. And between the throne and the 
four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb. Here's the next segment. The lion, the root, the lamb, Jesus. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John hears about a lion. And yet what he sees is a lamb. A lamb who, by the way, was seated on the throne with God, according to Revelation 3.21, who now stands. He was slain, dead. He bears the marks, yet he is alive and standing before the throne. John revealed this in his gospel account. So you know all of this stuff must be going through his brain at this time. In John 1, 29 through 32, if you remember, John is recording John the Baptist and what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of this must have been just flooding into his brain and his heart all at the same time. Now, in this, there's also some weird stuff, right? We see this lamb that's dead and yet alive, bearing all the marks of being dead, yet is alive. And we hear things like, it has seven horns. What? What lamb do we know that has seven horns? Like, that's just weird. And yet it's symbolic. The horns depicted power and might within this culture. In other words, this lamb is all powerful, perfectly powerful, completely powerful, omnipotent. It has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. What? Again, what? Seven eyes. This is so weird. Yet it's important. We've heard about these seven spirits already a few times. They're depicted in different ways. In Revelation 1.4, seven spirits who are before his throne. In Revelation 3.1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 5, seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And now... In chapter 5, verse 6, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I'm convinced that this is the Holy Spirit. The number seven again references and refers to perfection, completeness, holiness. Isaiah 11 actually helps me a little bit with this. He references the Holy Spirit using even a sevenfold description. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of power, the Spirit of knowledge, and the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. 
each part of this story, we see the triune Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All unique persons of the Trinity. All with unique functions, yet all perfectly holy. We see the all-powerful, omnipotent, all-knowing, omniscient, in all places at once, omnipresent Godhead. In this part of the revelation, remember there's only one, it's the revealing. In this part of the revelation, we see all three persons of the Trinity. But Jesus, the Lamb, he takes the scroll. Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and does so without delay or conversation. He walks up to God the Father's hand when the scroll is in it and just takes it. Why? Because he's the rightful owner with authority, and the Father relinquishes the scroll in a testimony to that authority. God has given it to him. He's been given the right to not only open it and read it, but for everything inside. He's been given the right to pronounce judgment. John chapter 5, this is the Gospel of John, verses 22 and 23 says this, For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So now comes a fourth segment, a new song. A new song. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I think it's important to think about this new song in the context of music. And I think you have to think in more the classical music vein. Think Tchaikovsky or Mozart or Bach. There is a new movement here. There's a change or a shift in the song, but it's a building on top of the creation song. There's this new part, an important new part. Again, the elders, the 24 elders fall down. Remember last week, Scott said, you know, they're up and down a lot. Up, down, up, down. But also here we see the four living creatures fall down before the Lamb. And now they have harps. They have harps. Now, not the little cherubim harp things that we see in a lot of our art. These are probably more similar to our modern day guitars. But now singing, here's the important part, has an accompaniment. And they have golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of those who know Jesus as the Redeemer and the Rescuer, the Restorer of their lives. 
Now, I can't help but take another Old Testament sidebar because this is so, so cool. Jesus was with his people, the Hebrew people, and it was represented in his tabernacle, this tent. And then eventually a temple was built and God was present with his people. Now, there's different elements to both of these that are very, very much the same. There was an outer court where there was an altar for burnt offerings. This is where they made sacrifices to cover their sin, where blood was poured out to cover sin. Then there was a holy place, which was reserved only for the priests. And there was three pieces of furniture in this place. A golden lampstand that's oil never burned out. A table for the bread of presence, which was baked weekly, and only the priests were allowed to eat it because it was seen as holy. Now, Jesus, remember this, he said, I am the light of the world, and I am the bread of life. Tuck that away for a little bit. Then there's the altar of incense. Because incense was burned each morning and each evening as an offering to the Lord. So the priests would take a golden bowl full of incense. They would go to the altar where the sin uh, was being covered with burnt offerings. They would take a hot coal. Remember, that's in the outer court. They would take a hot coal from the altar, put it in the bowl, and then they would enter through the only door where only priests could go into the holy place where they would offer this incense to God as worship, morning and night. Now, just a thin veil separated the holy place that we are just now talking about from the most holy place, what's referred to as the holy of holies, which only the high priest could enter and only once a year on Yom Kippur. In that place, it only included the Ark of the Covenant, which on the very top of it had something that was referred to as the mercy seat. It was supposed to represent the throne of God. So once a year, a priest would sacrifice a bull for the priests and uh, their household and a goat for all the rest of the people. And he would sprinkle the blood within the Holy of Holies. And then he would take a golden bowl full of incense. And he would place it on the mercy seat. On the throne. Offering up worship. The bowls of incense are really cool. Really, really cool and really significant. When Jesus died, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy of holies, was torn from top to bottom. This is referenced in Matthew 27, 51 and Mark 15, 38. In other words, top to bottom, it was God's doing. No longer was there separation between God's people and an almighty God. 
Here in the throne room, we see prayers being directly offered to Jesus. It's pretty cool. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, if you miss this, you miss absolutely everything. Jesus purchased you from the curse of sin and death by his perfect, sinless blood. His, his death is the only thing that could bring us redemption. And his resurrection secures our eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For your sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. In other words, he was perfect. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what theologians call the divine exchange. Righteousness given to you and judgment given to Jesus or taken upon by Jesus. You see, Jesus took this judgment upon himself, and that is what makes him the only one worthy to break the scroll seals. One more thing to note before we move on. In verse 9, it says, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This refers way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. I want to go there just for a minute. Genesis 17, verse 4, Behold, my covenant is with you, and shall, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Father Abraham had many sons. You remember this? Many sons had Father Abraham. Many nations. This revelation is bringing the whole plan together. The whole story from beginning creation to the end, it's bringing it all together. And this song is a new song. It goes on top of the creation song. This is a redemption song. Redemption unites and removes division, not only with each other, but with a holy triune God. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, this redemption song reality is not yet yours. And I'm just going to be honest with you. You're not going to love what's coming in the next few chapters. I beg you, if you don't know Jesus yet as your Savior, that you talk with somebody today because you're not promised tomorrow and you don't want to miss out. 
It's so good. Revelation 5, 10. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Believers are now kingdom members and priests to our God. This is what we refer to as the priesthood of all believers. We can go directly to him, and we will get to reign with Jesus. That's more for another sermon. Here's the fifth segment from chapter 5. Universal worship. Revelation 5, 11. And then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There's a lot there. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The number of angels is too large to count. There's so many of them. And they all join in. Then all creatures, anything created, all creatures, every single one responds to the Lamb in worship, attributing his worth to him alone. Because Jesus is worthy of everything. Absolutely nothing being held back. He's worthy of everything. We're told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this truth. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. Why? Because nobody else was perfect. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. This also reminds me of Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, remember, divine and human, all at once. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a cursed death. He took your curse and mine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So how do we apply this? There's a lot of information. Well, it's all about Jesus. All of Scripture, the whole Bible, the whole plan is all about Jesus. 
From when sin entered the world, even before that, God had a plan. Sin entered the world. There was atonement sacrifice needed. God provided the way through Jesus. And then at the end, the revelation, the culmination of everything, Jesus is still the one, still the one we look to, still the one that we need, still the one that is our only hope, the Messiah, the promised one, the only hope. This is all about God's plan from beginning to end to redeem sinners, us, and restore us to him. So really, how do we apply that? Well, once you know that, I mean, know that you know that you know that, it brings songs of worship from the deepest parts of your soul. There's not enough thankfulness that you can give. There's not enough you can attribute to him. He is our everything. So I'm going to ask the worship band to come because we're going to sing. We're going to worship. Now, it doesn't matter if you can carry a tune in a bucket. We are told to make a joyful noise to the Lord. This isn't about how pretty your voice is. This is about your heart. Giving worship to the one who deserves it all. So let's, let's respond appropriately. Will you stand as we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this plan that you've had since the very beginning and how you reveal it to us. God, thank you for the many ways that you show us how it ties together into one story. Thank you for Jesus and what he did for us. He is our living hope. He is the one who paid the price so that we can be redeemed. And we thank you for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.